2: Live from the Nasdaq market side overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, Karen Feinerman, and Guy Adami. Tonight on Fast Buckle Up, we're hitting the friendly skies. United making a big bet on its future by securing its largest aircraft order in history. We'll break down what it means for investors straight ahead. Plus. A crypto king goes on the record. Ethereum co-founder Joe Lubin joins us exclusively. We will talk to him about the red hot run in the cryptocurrency market. And later, we are trading the semi surge. Chip stocks hitting another all time high today. But one of our traders says, watch this name to see if an even bigger breakout is building. But we start tonight with what we think at least are the three most important charts in the market. The dollar, the transports and Caterpillar. All right, let's get to chart number one. The dollar, Dan flagged this one, breaking 92, above it today. So, Dan, what do you make of this chart? Why is this the most important chart to you?
3: I think it has something to do with seasonally, as we're thinking about here into quarter end and we get into Q2 earnings reports over the next few weeks. We know that inflation was really a hot topic on the Q1 calls. And it was one of those things that I think a lot of companies or S&P 5 companies in particular were highlighting as the play, uh, potential really to be a headwind for margins, that sort of thing. Well, here's the thing, right? If a lower dollar is deemed to be inflationary, if the U.S. dollar, which really, if you look at that Dixie, um, the dollar index, is how of that is about the euro. Um, you say to yourself, OK, if we bottom the dollar's going higher, how does that affect um, inflation expectations, at least for U.S. corporate earnings? And, and listen, a strong dollar has a lot of implications for U.S. corporate earnings, too. But I just think it's really important to kind of put this on your radar as we head into Q3 and specifically into Q2 earnings.
4: Well, it also has huge implications for a lot of trades that were weak dollar trades. And they were resource Mindy's. trades. They were, they were global mm-hmm. trades. They were mining trades. Um, and, and on some level, they were even bank trades, right? Because if you think about the weaker dollar, it was part of it was, you know, at, at least some sense that you were getting this reflation, yields were moving higher. So, I, look, I agree. I, I, I still think that the dollar was a very crowded trade to the downside. We're up uh, 3% off of that bottom. You saw the move it made on Fed day. Um, and, and it almost feels like it's now fighting to kind of get back. Through that level, if it doesn't, I actually think you could see the dollar weaken up. But I agree, uh, you know, the, the dollar is critical to so many asset classes.
2: Yeah, especially the commo- I mean, guy, you've been talking about commodities, thinking that there's still more room here. So, if the dollar goes higher, how can these trades go higher?
1: Well, that tailwind for a weaker dollar obviously no longer exists, and it will become a headwind. And if, if Brian Kelly were here, he would correctly say that a stronger dollar is a wrecking ball for so many of these multinational names. And I agree with Tim. I mean, maybe it was uh, a little crowded, as Dan said, as well, and maybe you're seeing this overcrowded bounce. I still think if you get some infrastructure deal, if these things start to come to fruition, the dollar's going to continue that trajectory lower, and that probably will continue to be good for the resource names. But there's no denying the dollar's had a big bounce off those lows.
2: Karen, how do you think about the dollar in relationship to earnings?
5: I guess, I mean, for multinationals, it'll be really important, but... To me, it's sort of all about this inflation trade, and where are and is inflation really transitory or not? I mean, there, all of these are obviously all connected, right? Inflation and the dollar and, and bonds and all of that, and it's just interesting to me that those inflation fear seem to have come way down. I mean, I don't know if you saw the uh, the Salesforce bond issuing today. I mean, they issued 40-year paper, and I think it was 95 basis points over Treasuries for 40-year paper. So that's kind of astounding to me that, you know, the credit markets are wide open and well bid, even in the potential face of inflation. I really don't know what to make of it, actually. So I'm not trading around the dollar. I'd do a terrible job of that for sure. So I don't know what to make of it. I'm a little
2: confounded. I mean, some of the commodities are also sending some mixed signals. I mean, everybody's citing the decline in lumber prices. We've done that right here on the show in terms of how much they've declined 42% in the month. But you take a look at steel prices, and they're still higher. So I'll go to Tim because you're you're in the steel trade. Tim, yep. yep. Um, is there something unique about steel that are keeping the prices bid higher, or well, some of it is, is, is a, it just mixed messages.
4: It's a supply demand dynamic, especially also uh, you know the, we we've argued rightly that the tariffs on the steel industry were devastatingly bad for the steel companies. But you have a case here where, especially some of the industrial growth, what's going on in the auto sector, what's going on in a lot of finished goods, uh, and that steel prices, I still think, stay high. And you look at HRC, Hot Roll Coil. Um, they're, they're roughly two and a half times where they were pre-COVID. So, I mean, I think that's right. And housing prices stay. Let's not forget the housing numbers we got this oh, morning. 30-year highs, arguably all-time highs, up 14.6% uh, on houses. And, the, you know, that, that's inflationary.
3: Right. And so if the Fed is going to actually start guiding towards maybe some sort of taper, uh, who knows, right? And we won't really get that language. We're not going to get the July meeting, but maybe um, at the end of the summer at Jackson Hole, what's going to happen here? The dollar is going to continue to rally here. And what's going to happen to that resource trade or what's left of it, at least in energy? I just think back to 2014, 15, 16, when the Fed started tapering in earnest and came off of ZERP, zero interest rate policy. Um, The dollar went up and crude went down devastatingly.
2: All right, let's move on to chart number two here. The IYT transportation ETF closing in on its 100-day moving average. Tim, you thought this was one of the most important charts for the market.
4: I, I, I did because, first of all, again, there's so many different ways to go with transports. If you're a Dow theorist, which mm. we at least refer to this, I think it's a little bit of a dated theory. But, again, it's the relationship between the industrial average and, and the transportation average, one taking the other higher or lower for that matter. Uh, and you have a case here where, look, this is, this is a rolling top possibly a, at a time when uh, – if we're worried about the Fed and and we we see all the industrial strength that we do see, it reminds me so much of the fourth quarter of 2018. So if you take that chart and you go back and you can see that that's the first move there. And that was also the last time essentially it traded through that 100 day aggressively. So I I don't know that we're in June of 2018, but we all know what markets did in December of 2018. And Dan referenced this. This is the point where it does the Fed come in and overstep their uh, their bounds. And the transports will price that in before. And, And remember, FedEx, was already flailing basically from June. So, you know, FedEx, which puts up monster numbers. There was a big upgrade today by Bank of America. And it's hard to argue against FedEx, but how much of this is priced in? So we have to watch this chart. I'm not saying it's rolling over here, but I'm telling you, there is a similar setup to what we had back in the second half of 2018, where the Fed was in play. You would priced in an enormous amount of growth. And it seemed like there's no way you could sell FedEx off. And in fact, it led a lot of other stocks lower.
2: Karen, though, you bought FedEx on the weakness off of earnings. Right. I just, you know, I love the story. I
5: think that some people think, all right, it's an e-commerce story. And so, you know, as the world reopens at the e-commerce part of it dies, I don't believe that. I think there's been a structural change. I also, um, you know, their deliveries to businesses are often higher margin because they're much denser. And so we're going to see more of that. They have pricing power. That's what's really important. And between they and uh, UPS, you know, they're pretty much rationalizing the business in a very smart way. They, they're both having pricing power, which is excellent for both of them. So I think it's really cheap if we get to a situation where the Fed is raising, let's say, or tapering. I want to be in a low P.E. multiple company like FedEx. I believe it's so many parts of the story. So, you know, could it trade cheaper? Absolutely. If it does, I will likely be there buying then as well.
2: Guy, does IYT cause you concern?
1: I think Tim brings up a great point, and it should. I mean, I understand Dow theory when, you know, I was young, it was a big deal. Nowadays, it doesn't hold as much weight, but it's still important. And I think it's good to, (laughs) you know, as it turns out, it was sort of discovered. You know, thank you for bringing that up. I appreciate that, Mel. I mean, it makes me feel all warm and fuzzy. But I think it's important to point out because, you know, the rails have been on fire. A lot of these names we talk about all the time have been on fire starting to sort of run out of steam i agree with karen i think fedex is a monster on valuation without question and it's gotten itself off the mat since that earnings sell-off we saw last week but to talk about the IYT, I think is important and i know you get mad at us when we bring back the guests as they say but i don't know if i'm allowed to go back in time to what dan just said about you know if the fed would have taper what that mean for dollar i agree but if that is offset by the fiscal side of the equation if the government continues to spend money like drunken sailors I think that will be the other side I think I'll take the other side of that rising dollar I will continue to say the dollar goes lower yeah, Sorry just to do say that this. to you, Mel. I'm sure you're making
3: a face of me right now. Yeah, she is, Guy. As, as am I, yeah. as is Tim. Yeah. Um, thank you for that. No, I, I think you said something that the market sniffed this stuff out. We're seeing this. We saw it in lumber, that sort of thing. Lumber is anticipating that we had 30-year highs in housing, that sort of thing. I just said about the IYT purely on a technical level, sitting right on that 100-day moving average right here around 260, and there's an air pocket down to the 200-day moving average at 235. So, you know, a lot of these stocks, I think, have incorporated a lot of good narratives about weak uh, or weird uh, dynamics in the in the supply demand sort of situation here and supply chains and the like. Um, But to me, I think that if they can't act well as the S&P is making new highs seemingly every day, there's probably more downside. So
2: this is a canary
3: in your view. I think so. I mean, I'm not saying that. And and, and granted, I don't think that the market, you know, it it feels like frothy a little bit. We just kind of incrementally make new highs. What was the S&P up two bips today? I mean, literally two bips today. That's not great. I think we'd all love to see a really sharp kind of sell off to see what the investors are made of here, maybe down 5% or something but like did
4: that. But this, this, you know, our, our opening the show with three of the most important charts you're going to see uh, according, is, to, as, us. according yeah. to us yeah. uh, but it's it's a little bit of a macro class right and, yeah. and i think what karen is saying about caterpillar excuse me we're going to talk about caterpillar what's saying about fedex is 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 very important with this stock this is a company that's really on top of its game the, the margin improvement the efficiencies of this company and it was only two years ago that you know we were running a string of terrible quarters where this management team was under a ton of pressure this is a very different company with some of those secular trends but but also just what they're doing bottom-up.
2: All right, let's uh, talk about Caterpillar. This yeah, is chart not. number three. Caterpillar is down nearly 13% from its 52-week high. Guy, this one causes you concern.
1: It does, because this is obviously the poster child for the global growth story, at least one of them, and we've said, talked about it for quite some time. I think we've all been very constructive on the name, and it has had a ridiculous run. But if you look what since they reported earnings, I think, at the end of April, uh, the stock traded up briefly, and it's to your point down 14% off that recent all time high. Somewhat concerning because that quarter was astonishing, in my opinion. And I think, given the fact that you're talking about 25 to 30% EPS growth, you should be looking at a stock that's well north of the prices it's currently trading at. Begs the question what does Caterpillar know that we don't? Now, again, they report, I believe, middle of July or thereabouts. But one thing sort of, or actually two things sort of stay with me. Carter Braxton Worth who does a tremendous job on this show and so many others specifically Options Action each Friday at 5:30 a few weeks ago if not a month or so ago he talked about Caterpillar maybe getting a bit ahead of itself he saw a sell off coming and he was right and Morgan Stanley post earnings actually had an underweight on the name with a $181 price target i mention it because if in fact Caterpillar is the poster child for global growth, maybe we should be watching it more closely than we have been.
2: I guess that's the question. Is it a cat-specific story, or is it a poster child? Tim, where do you stand?
4: I, again, look, what what happens with companies during difficult times is they become lean and they become efficient. They become, you know, the I think the, the reference to maybe it was FedEx, maybe it was Caterpillar. I, you know, the, the elephant can dance. Um, and I remember hearing this when we went through some of the, the, the crisis. And it forces these companies, these big industrial companies, to actually learn how to dance. In Caterpillar's case, there's no question uh, this is a company that is running very smooth. And, in fact, the multiple, and depending on where you are, I think the street you know, says they should be trading uh, around 19, 20, 21 times. That makes it a $240 stock right here. And, and again, it's a function, I think, of this company running well. But there's no question Guy is bringing this up much in the same way, it, really, we'd be talking about transports here. I mean, Caterpillar is is a flagship member of this club. And, and clearly, this is what people have been placing a lot of faith in.
2: You know, we're, we're highlighting three charts, but these are all sort of part of a, of a mosaic, if you will, Karen, in terms of, of where the market could mm-hmm. be going. And so you, the takeaway from these three charts with theoretically and presumably be fairly negative for the markets as we sit here pretty much at record highs. But is that your uh, conclusion, Karen?
5: Well, I always like to come back to Yogi Berra, you know, so we're lost, but we're making good time. So I'm not quite sure where it all ends up, but I think that the to me, it's the labor numbers are really going to be important. And if they stay in the middle of the fairway, I think we can get out of here just fine. So that's kind of what I it's not the most likely scenario, but it's certainly not impossible at all. So I, we are getting a lot of mixed messages because the world is full of mixed messages, but I'm more optimistic on the global growth story. And um, so I'm staying long. And I, I think one other thing we didn't really talk about is the rotation of these things. They're out of favor. Instead, people want to own Zoom and DocuSign. And I don't think that's really a commentary on their business. It's just sentiment and what's out of favor. I'm so used to being out of favor. I'm fine with it. I'm happy to own a portfolio that's. Wow! Hold on, oh, Karen. You're in, in a lot favor. of favor around here. <laughs> Let's just be clear. Favor. Stop that. Stop that talk.
3: <laughs> well, I, I think Karen makes a really good point about the rotations here. So the S&P is notching new highs mm-hmm. every day, and we're seeing some groups that act very poorly. We're just talking about them over the last few weeks or so. Um, so obviously, the rotations are helping out, which really kind of draws you into what's the breadth of the market, right? And, and it's not particularly great at the moment. It's because we know, Well, it's f FMAGATIM. And those five names make up about 20% <laughs> of the S&P 500 and about 40% of the NASDAQ 100, which is pretty astounding when you think about it. And they're back in favor right now. That's not a great setup, I don't think, into Q2 earnings over the next few weeks. We're going to kind of continue to surge into Q2 ending. And then if they continue to go into their earnings, we saw this after Q1, it's going to be really hard for them to rally, no, no matter how good the results are, because they are going to be difficult comparisons, I think, year over year.
2: Coming up, United placing its largest airplane order ever. So is this stock ready for takeoff? We're boarding that trade next. Plus, we've got an exclusive interview with Ethereum co-founder Joe Lubin. He's joining us from the Aspen Ideas Festival to give us his ideas on crypto. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back after this.
6: The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.
0: Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy.
2: Welcome back to Fast Money. Major news in the airline industry as United announces a 200-jet order from Boeing and a major hiring program. Phil LeBeau is in Newark with the very latest. Hey, Phil.
7: Hey, Melissa. You know, every so often there is a game-changer type of order from an airline. Remember when American way back when, back in like 2010 or so, said, hey, we're going to order a couple hundred, three or four hundred new aircraft and it was considered a game changer at that time. Well, now take a look at what's happened today with United Airlines. Scott Kirby, the CEO of United Airlines, who has been behind a number of big orders with other airlines in the past saying they need to do better. So they're going to be bringing in 200 new Boeing 737 Maxes, 70 Airbus A321 Neo's, those are the largest of the A321's, and then you've got a replacement, and this is big news, 200 regional jets those are gone. They will be replaced with larger mainline jets. A big commitment to say it's not enough to put people on a regional jet, maybe from Denver to Chicago or Chicago to New York, and then they're going to be upgrading the customer experience. All new interiors for all single-aisle planes, that's just the start of it. They're also going to be adding seatback entertainment in every seat, more premium seats, larger overhead bins. Here is Scott Kirby talking with us this morning on Squawk Box about the need to do better with customers. The anecdotes we hear from customers is once we get to September, they're going to be back on the road, particularly for client-facing visits. I don't think business travel comes back 100 percent, probably until 2023. But I think we have a big step function increase in September, another one in January when people have budgets again. Okay. Uh, but, but we absolutely think it's coming back 100 percent. My apologies. I thought we were going to be talking about customer service different stories when he talked about the fact that business travel and really all travel it's accelerating and you're seeing this with passenger levels for the last four days three of them have seen more than two million people flying here in the u.s so take a look at a few stocks here obviously there's united this is a huge deal Twenty-five thousand jobs are going to be added between now and 2025 and by the way it'll take the next four years to bring in all of these uh, airplanes also take a look at boeing and then at GE. For Boeing, this is further validation for the 737 MAX, and it really helps them solidify the, the delivery cadence over the next couple of years. And then for General Electric, the company makes the CFM Leap 1B engine, which powers the 737 MAX. And Melissa, I don't know if Guy is on today, but I could have sworn that yesterday he asked me about this, and I said, I think it's priced in the stock when it comes to Boeing. He said, ah, Phil's wrong. This stock is going to pop if there's ever an order like this announced. Didn't see a big pop today. Back to you. Oh, yeah. oh, zinger, oh, Phil. Oh,
2: guys, nice. you want to respond?
1: No, oh, guy, Guys, I remote. was going to actually... From, oh, if,
2: go ahead, Guy. No, I'm here. I'm here.
1: Hi. No, I was going to actually bring that up. I'm glad Phil did because I absolutely said... Well, first of all, the timing was good. It was good to see Phil yesterday, number one. And you initially did see that move. Boeing obviously opened higher on the day, but Phil Three. was spot on. I mean, today's price action can only be deemed... Disappointing, And for the Boeing bulls out there, which I had been one, got to cause some consternation, I would think. So great job by Phil. And, and I do appreciate him pointing that out.
7: <laughs> All right. Next, well, time, next time I want to see him in person, face to face. All right. Phil, thanks. Next time
2: it is. Phil bow in Newark Airport. It is amazing to, I mean, as a Boeing bull. Yes. Um, but on United also, you, you've been in the airline trade. Yep. That just a year ago, it lost $7 billion, took almost $8 billion in government aid, and here we are talking about the biggest order of aircraft in its history. What What a turn.
4: Um, By the way, Guy always kills people with kindness. Good for you, buddy. Um, I I think you have a case here where also this order was very much in place pre-COVID. United had to. No, but really part of the issue here is everybody. I I think it was well flagged that United had a major order to revamp its fleet uh, that was effectively in place. Pre-COVID, the, the important dynamics here, I think Scott Kirby talking about getting back to essentially margin levels or improving over 2019 margins by 2023 chasm. Yes. which would be you know, essentially cost per available seat miles, um, essentially CapEx as well. I mean, depending on how you want to look at it, but that they're they're cutting it. And, and look, one of the nice things about higher fuel prices in the airline industry is it forces airlines to be more efficient. So one of the dynamics that uh, I think the market also has started to get concerned with airlines as we started to see demand come back online, especially some of that maybe a little bit of international is are they going to grow their routes and their capacity too quickly? And that's a killer for airlines. So, uh, again, it hasn't been a very exciting trade over the last few weeks, but the uptrends, I think, for both Boeing and the airlines are intact.
5: Yeah. Karen? I don't, well, i would miss the, the whole airline trade. So just starting from that position, though, I, I'm not sure how much of this boom, this return and these big numbers, the TSA numbers we see every day, are uh, transitory as well. We talk about, you know, a big rush to go see people that you haven't seen in a really long time. But are people going to continue to travel at that pace? I don't know so many industries face the same thing whether it's retail or, or whatever but i've missed the the airline trade in the balance sheets for me i just uh can't get there and it moved so far now
2: speaking of travel do not miss an exclusive interview with booking holdings president and ceo glenn fogel that is tomorrow morning eight thirty-five a.m eastern time right here on cnbc Well, we've got a lot more ahead here's what's coming up
0: so much
8: talk of bitcoin lately but what about ethereum The Cryptos co-founder joins us next to break down his thoughts on the space. Plus, charging up. Sammy's hitting a new all-time high today. So, is it too late to plug into this trade? We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns.
5: For more than a decade, Comcast has been committed to bridging the digital divide and connecting millions to affordable high-speed internet. But the barriers to get connected go well beyond affordability. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to reach millions with digital skills training, resources, and opportunities needed to succeed in a digital world. Project Up, building a future of unlimited possibilities. Learn more at Comcast.com slash Project Up.
2: Welcome back to Fast Money. Ethereum climbing higher again today. The cryptocurrency is now at more than 16% in just the past week. Let's talk more about this red hot run. Leslie Picker joins us live from the Aspen Ideas Festival with the Ethereum co-founder. Leslie, take it away.
9: Hey, Hey, Melissa. Thank you so much. I'm here with Joe Lubin, who's also the CEO of Consensus. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Mel summed it up perfectly. What do you make of the recent price activity in crypto?
8: Um, So. If you've been watching for years or, or the last few months, uh, it's clear that there's so much more activity in the general blockchain ecosystem and especially the Ethereum ecosystem, and uh, the prices have risen in concert. Uh, and so uh, there was so much intensity that they, they essentially a few weeks ago hit a, a bit of a blow-off top. Uh, but uh, yeah, we're we're back uh, uh, to growing in price, and the activity hasn't hasn't stopped and the cycles that we're seeing our, in our ecosystem, uh, just because we're, we're really crossing the chasm that this is really uh, relevant to, to pop culture and the financial world right now. And so the cycles are really compressed. And so we'll see recoveries much faster. The downturn forward.
9: cycles are compressed.
8: The, the up and down and up cycles, exactly.
9: So volatility, additional volatility Absolutely. is what you're expecting. Yeah.
8: Um, so there will be volatility because this is a paradigm shift uh, that is underway um, to... Uh, new trust foundations, new decentralized financial infrastructure for the planet, and and many things being built on top of that. What I was referring to is that we're not going to see long crypto winters. We're going to see crypto winters that feel that are about three weeks, maybe three months, uh, if things get extremely overly exuberant for a while, but uh, uh, things are going beautifully in
6: the
9: ecosystem. Well, I want to ask you about regulation, because one of the big reasons why we did see a revaluation of crypto broadly in recent weeks has been due to some crackdowns mainly in China and other places across the globe. Um, You know, how do you look at regulation? Is it something that concerns you? Do you feel like Ethereum and Ether are doing things differently in a way that they may not be subject to as much regulation as some of your peers?
8: So decentralized protocol technology is philosophically aligned uh, with free market um, uh, capitalism and liberal democracies and so um, when more regulators and politicians and leaders of business understand that, uh, I think it's going to go very well for this technology uh, with respect to regulation. Um, the SEC has uh, developed a great understanding of the technology and they're regulating improper issuances of securities um, but they're are, are not trying to stifle innovation. Um, and many in the SEC are are advocating for safe harbors or the idea of progressive um, decentralization, letting innovative projects go for a little while. Um, and essentially, um, the innovation in decentralized finance uh, is probably going to be able to thread the needle um, such that Uh, The regulations that have developed around protecting consumers from those who custody their assets are, if you design your protocol correctly, are not really going to be necessary. And so regulation is probably going to have to evolve as this new innovative technology um, uh, really uh, starts to take over.
9: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Mel has a question back in studio for you.
2: Yeah. Hey, Joe, thanks for um, suffering through the rain for this interview. We appreciate it. We see you're getting wet there. Um, But I got to ask you about Elon Musk. Um, When Elon Musk announced that part of his balance sheet would be in Bitcoin, that was a good thing for Bitcoin. Then he then he highlighted um, the energy hungry nature of proof of work versus proof of stake. And he was right. And that really hurt the Bitcoin trade, at least. And so I'm wondering what your overall take is on an influencer like Elon Musk sort of whipsawing the market like that.
8: Um, So first, uh, with respect to the energy issue, I think Bitcoin does have a bit of an energy issue. Um, Not as big as uh, major financial institutions uh, and the whole financial infrastructure. Um, Ethereum has a little bit of an energy issue right now, but most of the transactions are moving to layer two. They get the the full trust guarantees from layer one. And so our energy issue is diminishing right now and will go to zero uh, pretty much in december when ethereum 2 the proof of stake network merges with ethereum 1 the proof of work network and and proof of stake replaces proof of work and so uh ethereum's energy issue just goes away as to elon's uh various vocalizations or or twitterizations um he's he's talking his book in many cases it's nice that he's uh interested in our ecosystem and uh uh, I invite them to look at uh, at the most dominant technology
9: um, Ethereum allows for you know the creation and uh, monetization of nft's non fungible tokens. Uh, there was a huge surge of these in the first quarter, and, and since then we 've seen sales kind of dissipate. What does that meant for ethereum? Do you see nfts picking back up anytime soon
8: sure so what 's happening right now in our ecosystem um, is basically a paradigm shift to a new trust foundation and a new decentralized finance infrastructure. Uh, And we're seeing uh, a few different aspects of the technology crossing the chasm. A guy named uh, Jeff Moore, about 30 years ago, wrote a book called Crossing the Chasm, which outlines how innovative technologies uh, achieve consumer adoption. Um, And we're seeing cryptocurrencies, we're seeing decentralized assets, decentralized finance, and NFTs crossing the chasm together. So the whole ecosystem is growing enormously. It's going to grow in fits and starts. There's just so much exuberance, sometimes irrational, um, and we'll have some cooling periods around that. But uh, uh, the trend is up. We're going to see higher highs and higher lows, uh, and the NFT boom is still very much intact. Uh, We at ConsenSys and a new network called Palm NFT Network uh, that we helped stand up, Um, we're seeing enormous corporate interest in building NFT platforms and and launching NFTs.
9: Well, it sounds like NFTs, crypto, about as volatile as the Aspen weather here today. So we appreciate you uh, bearing with us, hanging out in the rain uh, and sharing your insights uh, today. Joe Lubin, co-founder of Ethereum. Melissa, I'll send it back over to you.
2: All right, Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Um, NFTs are certainly a big driver in terms of that recent run-up that we've seen in Ethereum, Dan. It's sort of um, proof that there is a network that works um, in DeFi, of course, it's the backbone.
3: Yeah, I I mean, I think both of those are big themes, obviously, this year, and that was one of the reasons why you had ETH um, at 3,400, when it was the height of that NFT frenzy. I think no matter what happens with NFTs, uh, the values, right, that we see in fine art or some other aspects, DeFi is gonna be the thing that the major bulls really focus on, and they're gonna focus on it over a longer term period, and they're gonna kind of watch that, you asked that question about proof of work to proof of stake, and that's really gonna be like, okay, you know, like all of those naysayers out there who are worried about energy and then they're saying DeFi is not really a thing, kind of reminiscent, reminiscent to the excitement around ICOs back in 2017 when we had that retail frenzy. I mean, that is one of the things that people will speak to a little bit. I think we're going to learn a lot about Ethereum over the next few months when they have that transfer, ETH1, ETH2 merging, and then seeing some of these protocols in DeFi really um, disintermediating some of the existing sort of established incumbents. And maybe some better understanding
4: or some of the misperceptions about energy efficiency um, of Ethereum, which I think Joe just pointed out, but that POM, this new network, which is, you know, essentially that much more efficient, created by some of the godfathers of crypto. So, I mean, I, to the extent that the evolution of some of the technology on these platforms continues very, very quickly to, to meet some of the growing demands of the institutionalization. Uh, also, really important point about that that. Free economies, liberal economies, liberal democratic economies um, should be embracing this, um, that ultimately this is a market-oriented system, and that's really the foundation here. I think That's the dynamic that I think a lot of people need to understand.
2: Coming up, semi-surging today as the group hits a new all-time high. So which name should you be charging into or plugging into that trade in just a few? But first, we're breaking down the banks, and the one big bank CEO that just laid down the gauntlet will explain when Fast Money returns. We've got a news alert on Chinese ride-hailing giant Didi Global. According to reports, the company has priced its IPO at $14 a share. That is at the high end of its expected range. So again, Didi pricing for its IPO. All right, let's check out the big moves in Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs today. Investors liking this news. More big banks unleashing their capital, increasing dividends today. But there's one CEO really laying down the gauntlet. Dan, you flagged this one. You thought uh, Mr. James Gorman was the man.
3: Well, you know, what's funny. You just put those two up, Morgan and Goldman, long thought to be investment banks. You know what? They traded higher, okay? They had higher dividend increases and buybacks, that sort of thing, on a relative basis to the money center banks. All the money center banks traded down. If you read through their press releases, they sounded pretty lame. They didn't sound like they're going for it. Gorman's like, we're going for it. Not only did we buy Eaton Vance, we bought E-Trade in the last couple years. They're just doing it, and they're going to give back money to shareholders. I mean, all the credit, um, you know, for them for, for mapping out a, a different future than a lot of their competitors. I guess.
4: Well, they de-risked, they de-risked their business. And, and so when you move to a wealth management business and an investment, so MSAM, MSIM, you know, they, this is almost $6 trillion of assets. And, and so this is to me why this is such an interesting story. And yes, they are in a position to give more capital. They can be a lot more lean and mean. They don't need the same balance sheet and they have a predictable business. So uh, they made some very, very decisive moves and very different moves uh, than some of their peers. And I think that's been reflected in the stock's multiple. So it was my final trade last night because I thought relative to the other money center banks, this is the one that really benefits from this type. And and the shackles seemingly are, I wouldn't say they're off, um, but but there's there's definitely a lot freer reign for these banks.
2: It's not to say that Goldman Sachs didn't try to change its business either, Guy. I mean, they they tried hard to go into consumer with Marcus. They just chose a different route. Um, Morgan Stanley wanted bolt-ons. Goldman Sachs wanted to build out. I um, And here we are.
1: Yeah, many people try, few succeed. And that, I think, Goldman falls under the, you know, the few category. Respectfully, I work there. I love the place. But Morgan Stanley has succeeded, to Tim and Dan's point. And they've gotten themselves into three different verticals. And they're getting the multiple on the back of it. Just so we uh, understand each other, I think it's important to point out. I mean, Morgan Stanley's now trading significantly north of two times tangible book. It'll be interesting to see where they report that when they do report earnings. And 85 in terms of price, that was a huge top in 2000, another top in oh seven. obviously through it now. You wonder if we do a little back and fill that 85 level and see what it trades like. But Morgan Stanley has definitely asserted itself and um, in the investment banking side of things. And then Tim's point, they deserve it of that multiple.
2: More than two times tangible book has got to be one of the highest value um, banks on the street, Karen. I mean, is that, is that warranted? Does it deserve that?
5: I think it's somewhat of a different animal than a bank. And so to Tim's point, they're talking about more recurring revenue. And so that should get a higher P.E. multiple. And I'm not so focused on the price tangible book like I am in some others. I uh, I have Morgan Stanley. I have I have the good, the bad, and I would say the ugly, but I'll say the handsome, which is JPM. The good is Morgan Stanley, the bad, which is Citi and Wells Fargo. But I think on a valuation basis. Um, those are the probably the biggest upside. And then J.P. Morgan is sort of the premier in the space. So I own them all. And I think that we will see, even with rates lower, if loan growth happens, then net interest margin will have bottomed out. All
2: right. Well, the action, in the bank sending ripples to the fintech space. We are seeing a big uptick in options activity in some of those names. Mike Co joins us with the action. Mike, what are you looking at?
1: Yeah, I was taking a look at SoFi today. Now, this is a name that typically does trade quite a lot of options, but it traded a lot more today, more than three times its average daily options volume, nearly 340,000 calls traded, and calls significantly outpaced puts. The most active options were this week's 20-strike calls, over 38,000 of those traded for about 92 cents. So buyers of those calls are obviously betting that the stock can recover from today's decline and some of the weakness that we've seen over the past couple of days. And we also saw some bullish activity extending into the regular Julys and out to August 25s as well. But I would point out that implied volatility also rose quite substantially over the last couple trading sessions. And right now it's trading at over 100% implied volatility. What that tells us is that the stock could move as much as 40% over the course of the next three months or
2: so. So options activity heats up in SoFi. The capital shackles are off the big banks, Dan. What does that sound like to you, possibly? I
3: mean, come on. This is a company. Huh. It just went. It's been public for one year, uh, for one month. Excuse me. It went public at Dspact on June 1st, and you know, to see that sort of activity and talk about Mike, talk about that range over the next three months is kind of interesting. I think we've all talked about Anthony Noto, the CEO of this company, former Goldman employee. I think guy had it right. We were talking about it a little earlier. I think this company gets bought by one of these major uh, you know, Wall Street incumbents as they try to diversify some of their revenue streams. We just talked about what Morgan Stanley would, 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 would think about um, or what has done over the last few months. And I couldn't think of a, probably a better successor to one of these handsome CEOs, Karen, than Anthony Noto. <laughs> <laughs> All right.
2: Mike thank you. Mike Coe with the Options Action. Be sure to tune into the full show, Options Action, Fridays, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, semi soaring today and posting a fresh record high. One of our traders says one name is the stock to watch. That is next. And retail records, a bunch of names hitting all-time highs today. So who should you be checking out with? We're trying on the retail trade and Fast Money returns. Miss a moment of fast?
8: Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money podcast.
2: Tonight on CNBC, be sure to catch Buffett and Munger, a wealth of wisdom. Hear the Oracle of Omaha and his five-decade partner, Charlie Munger, share their stories of friendship, the deals they've done at Berkshire, and what they say makes their company so special. That is tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern time, right here on CNBC. All right, let's check out the semiconductor ETF hitting a fresh all-time high today as broader tech rebounds.
3: One of our traders says one chart in the space could
2: tell us more about where the sector is heading.
3: Dan, what are you looking at? Well, it's Taiwan Semi, which happens to be the largest weight stock in that ETF here. Look at that green line, that horizontal line. It maps to the breakout from uh, late December. And we stopped there twice, like to the penny, as our friend Carter Worth would say here. So it's got some uh, good support down there. It's still down 15 percent from its all-time highs made in Febu- uh, mid-February. You see it approaching that downtrend there. It's got good support of the 200-day moving average. They should report earnings in the next few weeks. If that thing breaks out, that would be the catalyst to get that SMH moving higher. Um, and then there's some other names in there, like Intel, that have not really been participating of late. So if you had those going, you're going to have a massive breakout.
4: Look, you make an argument that SMH leads the entire market. I'm talking about everything. I'm talking about the S&P because the the SMH has led the triple Q. So so the NASDAQ 100 has underperformed the, the semiconductor index by almost 20% in the last calendar year. Yet it's failed to make new highs effectively from January of this year. So it's been going sideways and looks like it's building that momentum. And again, uh, we've said uh, since the Fed meeting that markets are going to move higher because the signal for mega cap tech is is clear and and the signal for semiconductors, which I think is clearly rooted in more actual cyclicality than just technicals of where indices are weighted, um, is also your friend here.
2: Yeah. I mean, this was, to pull back the curtain a little bit, in contention for one of the most important charts of the market guy, which we started at the top of the show with. Um, yeah. I don't know where you would yeah. rank this in relationship to the other three we did highlight.
1: I'll probably rank it fourth.
2: <laughs> that's
1: where we are right now. <laughs> now, great job by our SMH? production crew. Listen, no, Dan brings up a great point. If Taiwan Semi were to cooperate and start to participate, SMH absolutely explodes to the upside. And if you want to get granular, I know for a fact we've all collectively talked about NVIDIA. I think we were puzzled by its price action on May 27th after earnings, and we said stock should be a lot higher. You know, that sideways action lasted a day. Stock is up 20% since. Raymond James has put a $900 price target, and I, my sense is a few weeks from now, somebody to put the first $1,000 price target on the back of NVIDIA. So. Tim is right to point out the importance. Dan is right to point out Taiwan Semi. If Karen says something, she will no doubt be right. And the you know, chances are, if I flip a coin, I'm right once in a while, too.
2: Coming up, we're going shopping for opportunity with a basket of retail stocks hitting fresh record highs. We'll bring you the trades next. Welcome back. Here's a sneak peek at the Kramer cam. Jim is talking with the president of Shopify. Catch the full interview. Top of the hour on Mad Money. Sticking with retail, a bunch of big names hitting record highs in today's session, including Nike, Target and Costco. Which of the names would you bet on? Karen, I'll go to you on this.
5: Target, for sure. So I'm long, so I I am betting on it. I mean, They've just done a phenomenal job during the pandemic, but coming out of the pandemic, they use that as an opportunity to reshape their business. And now the mix is getting better, more apparel, higher margin. um, And I think some of their costs will come down. The only fly in the ointment is labor costs are going to go up. But I think they've grabbed market share, and I think they're doing a great job, and they're going to keep that market share. Back to the top of the show on the stronger dollar, they are an entirely U.S. business. so We do see a stronger dollar, and they source from outside of the U.S., That's better for them. But all that having been said, their success hasn't led to a crazy valuation. The multiple is still below the market multiple, below 20. So Target is my favorite. Guy?
1: I I agree with her 100% on Target, but I'll take door number two and say a name like Dollar Gen, uh, which has been a monster if you look at it. It's getting off the mat. They report in September. Valuations are reasonable. You know, the stock had the sell-off. And I think it trades higher. I'll just throw Nike in there as well in terms of that last quarter. We talked about it last week. It was an extraordinary quarter. I mean, their inventories are under control. Their margins are improving. It's in a new range now, getting through that 148 level. So I think Nike is a monster as well.
2: I like how you did door number 2 and it was completely off the board but I'll let that go. We're almost at the end well
1: of the that's show what Monty Hall used to do. I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah, and he and he stole door
4: number 3 and and it is Nike. And and so again North American comps up 32% margin improvement 450 a share makes this not as expensive of a stock as it was a month ago, and the price action after those earnings just to spike 13% uh, and consolidate. In a, if anything, the technical folks would, you know, maybe you're even calling that a flagpole of sorts. There's, there's an opportunity for the valuation, though, of this company to be something that you can actually get excited about for the first time in a while.
2: Yeah. I mean, Nike does. You, you like to look at those charts, Dan. And so when you take a look at Nike and you see it move even higher off of that big spike, that's a good sign.
3: I got to tell you, I think that move last week in Nike was one of the most astounding moves I've seen in a single stock in a very long time. Uh, You know, not that like a good quarter was not unexpected in the guidance and that sort of thing. I think it seemed to be a bit of a transformative sort of thing. I don't know if you could buy it here on a spike like that. You'd probably like to have it come back in and consolidate somewhere. But that story is humming.
2: All right. Up next, final trade. For the final trade let's go around
1: the horn guy me. i love phil lebeau giving me the business that was tremendous i love phil number <laughs> one too. i also I love, love jack dorsey <laughs> I, it was tremendous so good jack dorsey not in the i mean he's two ceos in one and he crushes on both twitter and earnings on july
2: 22nd karen finerman Yeah, so we just talked about it in the
5: F-block, Target. The dilemma is what do you do when you have a stock that runs up so much? If you don't own it, do you buy it here? Well, you go home long, it's the same as buying it. So if you don't own it, buy some, like a quarter position. You'll probably get a chance to buy it cheaper, but maybe not. What's the difference, buy some. Tim Seymour.
4: So we talked about China's DD coming into the top end of the range, ride share and a $65 billion valuation effectively look if this book was so oversubscribed by u.s investors you've got to be buying baba because again the the implicit headwinds against baba is is big brother and that's the dynamic that i think you have to accept is on your side also Didi. so alibaba up 10 percent to the 100 i think she breaks higher
3: Dan Nathan. Yeah, real quickly on Guy's Twitter call. We got Tom Brady on a space tonight talking crypto. Yesterday, we had Sean Carter with Jack Dorsey on a Twitter space. That thing's on fire here. But I like SoFi. I like SoFi. Last week as a final trade at 21 and a half. I like it here.
2: Thank you for watching Fast. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Money. Meantime, Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.
0: What's on the horizon for financial markets?